This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. A common refrain in permaculture is about our need to develop a sense of place, to have an understanding of where we currently live, where we come from, and to find a connection to the land under our feet or where we call home. For those of us within the Anglosphere, we have a nation that encompasses our state or province, and from there the city or town that defines our address. Those determine our polities within our biosphere. Many of us are fortunate enough to decide where we will live and how we will relate to these places by choosing Earth, human, or biocentric lenses to view the world. As a result of colonial disruption, however, whether the conquest of Latin and South America by the Portuguese and Spanish, by the American Drive West, by Dutch colonization throughout Sub-Saharan Africa, or by British expansion into India and Australia, many native, First Nation, and Aboriginal peoples lost access to the traditional territories where their language developed and their ceremonies and cultures connected them to the land. To help understand how this affects the people whose land many of us now inhabit, and to continue the conversation about how we, as permaculture practitioners, can decolonize our actions and be better allies when asked, I'm joined today by Michelle Van Every and Steve Henhawk, members of the Gaia tribe. Together, they share their work to repatriate the traditional tribal lands in upstate New York, around the Seneca Falls region, and revitalize their community by continuing to teach their customs and culture to future generations, through the Gaia language and community gardening, in order to return the native people and plants to the land. Enjoy this conversation with Michelle and Steve, and I'll join you again after. Michelle, Steve, can you give us a bit of your respective biographies and backgrounds, and how you came to New York to repatriate your traditional tribal lands? I came um, back to the territory in 2010, but I was born and raised over on the Cataragas Indian Reservation, which is um, located on the Seneca Nation territory. And I came back in 2010 under Clint Halftown's administration. I was one of the first 10 families to move back, me and my three kids. And within the first year of moving back, the first families, we all like, you know, we were asking a lot of questions. I mean, he gave us a job, you know, of course, in the stores and in the different businesses and things, but we needed that. But we also wanted to know like who we were, like, where's our language, where's our culture. And so within that first year, there was a big rift because he couldn't answer a lot of those questions. And I think a lot of it was like, we're going through like a, um, like an identity crisis, like a cultural identity. And, you know, being raised over on the Seneca Nation, I adapted to the Seneca customs and traditions and grew up with, you know, their, their way of life, which is di- way different to my way of life, which I've learned, you know, over these last, now we're in 2020, I've been here for 10 years. And um, I've learned a lot in the last five years. I came back when we started the schoolhouse, when that was built. And um, my kids, you know, they all got very involved into the schoolhouse. And now they all, you know, they they all speak. They're learning their language. They're picking up the customs. My daughter, she was one of the first ones to um, give birth out here. So she decided to do a home birth because she goes to me, mom. She goes, this is how we're going to let him know that he was born right here on the land and that's how it's supposed to be. And she goes, and I feel like nobody's done that in over 200 years. 
So she, so she decided to give birth. All her kids were born at home. To her, that's real, like, special and meaningful. And um, she can share that with her kids. And now why, you know, this is why you were born here. For them now, I'm like, it's real special to see the young kids here because they're all tied to this land now out here. And this is home, you know. I mean, it's home for all of us. But like I said, we were all com- we're all coming from a cultural um, an identity. You know, where the Cayugas on the United States side, there's like a little over 500 enrolled Cayugas. However, there's like 2,000 up in Grand River on the Six Nations Reserve. So over here, we're spread out across the United States. And a majority like of that 500 membership, there's, I'd say, approximately a third of it resides on the Cataragas and the um, Salamanca Allegheny Territory. But again, you know, everybody over there has adapted to the Seneca Nation way of life and, um, you know, the Senecas. And, and then those that aren't even, you know, don't have that, you know, like say they're living in... Um, you know, Washington state or in, you know, anywhere, anywhere. And to not have that, you just wonder who you are. And a lot of people just want to maybe speak their language. You know, I want to hear what it's like. I know I'm Cayuga and I belong to this clan, but that's about all I know sometimes, you know, that's, that's what it feels like. But now it's like, you know, we've gained so much knowledge about learning how to the, the planting and with our ceremonies and the language and, in our culture and it's real beautiful it's real beautiful and it's real spiritual and i think that's really what's tied this whole community together you know i mean and we're a small community and we don't always all get along but we go back to what we've learned and you know we got to sit down and be grateful and that that's what brings us all back together and i know a lot of people that are in outside nations will say that to us they're like we see you guys you know you you're struggling and you're trying to fight this battle and get back to you who you were and you know keep your chiefs and your clan mothers and still at the same time trying to build back who who you are you know your language your culture your you know and revitalize all that it's been a real struggle but at the same time it's like really um I'm real grateful it's taught me a lot about acceptance in life and how what happened this past February out here on the territory, we were able as a community, you know, we're still pulling through that together. And that's based on, you know, what we've learned and what we've developed and getting back to our roots. And that's where I come from. (laughs) And Steve, where do you come from and how did you make this return? Well, I'm originally from um, Six Nations Reserve. That's uh, over in Canada. Like we're all Gayakono, but... When after the Sullivan's campaign, when we were um, forcefully removed from the lands here, everybody we ended up and we ended up, we all separated. So that's how, you know, like we got Gayokono in Canada. We got Gayokono, like Michelle had said, residing with the Senegas. And even as far as Oklahoma, we have Gayokono there. So the people were dispersed from here. So that's how I ended up there. And um, how I started to come back here was fast forward a bit into Michelle, how she was talking. Um, how they were looking for, I guess, basically looking for language and identity. And when the Cayugas had separated, that's where a lot of the language and culture, well, I guess most of it had survived was with the group that had went to Canada. 
uh, Six Nations. So myself, I was fortunate to uh, have been, I grew up submersed in, you know, culture and language. I was, uh, grew up with my grandparents. So they, they were looking and that's how they contacted me. And then I came out here and it just started out. I was coming out, teaching some language and mixing in and all. One, one thing, went getting the culture and stuff. And um, that was um, six years ago now. And I haven't left. So this is where I'm at now. So, so that's kind of my story on how, how this whole thing started. But like I said, there's been um, people that's been here longer than I have. And there's a whole backstory to this that goes, you know, way back into, you know, old politics and, you know, this old land claim thing and stuff like that. But with a lot of times it's um, with this revitalization and what we're trying to do to work with to even bring indigenous seed back to the area. It's really tough to work within this realm of politics. So a lot of times what we try to do is try to keep the revitalization efforts and things like that out of that. That's uh, but that's tough at times, and that yeah, that's kind of in a nutshell, I guess, where how I'm here, and that's uh, my role that I, I try to play here is to you know help with any revitalization efforts that I can see, and also with looking at repatriation in different areas as well, you know, in many different forms. So yeah. And through this process, what have you been discovering about the native seeds and the land practices of the region? and the revitalization efforts to reestablish these traditions among your people. When I first came here, I was, uh, the first place I planted was um, at the north end of the lake around Seneca Falls. And um, see, our, um, our history is pretty vibrant here, even though we haven't been here. But if you look at, you know, the short period that we've been gone, 200 years, so we were able to, like, retain a lot of the place names of it. So and where I was up there in uh, Seneca Falls, it was uh, it's, it's clay, so it's really tough to grow in there. So what I've been trying to do is um, move closer to the traditional planting areas where we where we were in this past summer. Been able to uh, plant here in Romulus, right around Romulus. So um, like I said, we've got like we're lucky enough to still retain the um, traditional names in Vayakono of it, and like I said, up in the Seneca Falls area. It's clay, so we got a name for that. That's one no one dot game. That's really what it means. Is it's at the clay, but where we are right here in Romulus now, this is where the orchards and a lot of things like that started. You know, we like before, so you can kind of see the composition of the soil. It really changes right around here. And as far as like cactuses and things, um, what I try to do is um, like watch where I plant and watch different things. I think a lot of times, you know, is what I'm doing is um, I watch who's around me. Like I watch, try to watch what's being planted across the road or, you know, because we don't have the, uh, the luxury of, of, of that really right now to control uh, where we're like, you know, where, where we are and like having a place to plant like that with that, you know, so a lot of times like it's kind of like um, kind of looking for places like to plant where, where you kind of know your neighbor and you kind of know what they're up to a little bit as well. And I mean, because like with the introduction of a lot of the seed, what I what I'm like to bring back is uh, I'm real worried about, you know, what I want to do is I want to get it back to pretty much the same genetics as, as it was when we took it, right? Because like I said, it's been growing over in Canada for a couple hundred years. So I've been um, replanting and like I said, the, the closer I can get down back to the original areas, I noticed that uh, the seeds are doing a lot better. 
you're finding those places within the territory where these plants would have traditionally been grown, and finding that this cultural knowledge that's carried through the generations is still applicable to these places as you relate the knowledge to the place names? Very much so. Very much so. Because it's like when I started looking at the soil, that's how I started. I had to go by the, uh, the name, right? Onawadake. And really what it, that means in Gayakono is just, it's at the clay. So it's nothing but, you know, a big chunk of clay up there. Like historically, that's probably where we would go and draw clay out of it and make pottery or things like that. Um, because that's what that place was for. And when we get down here closer to Romulus, the name of that was uh, Wakiawanda. And really what that talks about, and we break that word down, is like grapefruit. So this is where the, uh, the, the orchards and stuff had started. And then once I had got here, I started working with some uh, archaeologists out of the school at Cornell. And then we start looking at historically where villages were and things start matching up real, real quick. So um, where villages and like where the, the, the big orchards were and things, orchards and the big gardens. So like I said, a lot of the names, that's how I, how I figured it out was, you know, I just went by those historical names to have it match to that. And you make me think of how much knowledge has been lost as a result of colonization and how people on the land were pushed out. And in many cases, that knowledge wasn't preserved. Until recently, for the last 20 years, I've lived in central Pennsylvania, which was traditionally the land of the Susquehannock. But as I understand, the last stories we have of those people date from the end of the 18th century. And so we still have these place names that come from their language, but as outsiders, we have no connection to it. There's no meaning to it other than just being the name of a town or a river or stream that's borrowed in that way. We don't have a connection to the rich history of why a place was named in that way. There's, there's so much been, that's been done, you know, through like, like you said, you mentioned colonization efforts. And that's why this revitalization is so important to the people. We can refer back to Michelle's you know, like this connection that these kids had, you know what I mean? Because there's a generation that was born here. And like, you know, because like with me, like I said, I, I grew up over there, but I was fortunate to be submerged in that. But coming over here, um, and that's where like this generation that's born here, that's where this real connection to the land is really important. That's what's going to come into play. And how do you find that these traditions and rituals and this reestablishment reconnect you to the land and your sense of place what the kids and everything what they're learning and they're picking up through language and um singing through our songs through those songs that they're hearing it's connecting them to the land because it's going to be talking about this area and like when we growing up like on different territories you know that's why i used to wonder you know how we would connect you know, we're all Haudenosaunee, we're all one, which were comprised of six nations. And I said, so what makes them Seneca? What makes them Cayuga? What makes them Onondaga? You know, what besides their language? And now, you know, you can hear it in the songs because that's where it connects you to your land and, you know, right down to planting and our, our everyday life. So now our children are picking those up and they're hearing it. And not only are they singing it, but now they can visually see what they're singing. That those songs tell the story of the land and the place and the people. And as you continue to deepen your connection to the language, it reinforces the idea 
of a people in a place? Yes. Yes, exactly. So, like, for instance, you know, like the Senecas over there, they're all like, you know, about the great hills and this and that. So a lot of their, you know, songs are about their geographical area. And even over as far over um, to Seneca Lake, you know, all of that. But for us, Gayakono, we've been not here for, we weren't here for 200 years. So how, you know, I mean, in hearing songs, like, I mean, I, for instance, Steve, you know, he grew up listening to all of the Gayakono songs and brought them back to us so these kids can physically see and hear and, you know, sing them. You know, like I said, I, I mean, I'm grateful that I grew up with the Senecas, but honestly, when I would hear those songs and stuff, I would sit there and think like about my own identity and like i wonder what our we would sing i wonder where we were i wonder where what was going on and you know and nobody could tell me that and so now that you're back on this land the songs that you heard and the ones that you're learning now they help to kind of root you yeah and a distinction that i'd like to understand a bit better What's the difference between like Gayakono and Cayuga or like Seneca? Is Gayakono your name for your people in your own language versus something that was given from the outside? That's exactly what it is. Um, Gayakono, that's what, that's what we identify ourselves as. Um, Cayuga, that's a name that was put on us, right? You know what I mean? Yeah, it was a, it's, a, it's, it's a play on it because I researched it. I did some research on it and tried to figure out how they come up with it, right? When they were mapping this area in the early 1700s when they were coming through they were mapping it but they were using scouts from uh different tribes and uh they had oneida scouts with them that they brought so a lot of times when the map makers were coming through they would they wouldn't even talk to us they would talk to their scouts and they would ask them where they were and what the names of these places were so and it came when they spoke to their scouts they were spoken in a different language a different dialect uh Haudenosaunee. So they spoke Oneida to them. And when they, and if you were to, how the Oneida is how they refer to us, they, they refer to us as Gayotgahaga. So when they wrote it down, this this Gayotga part, that the beginning, it just come out as Kiyuga and that's what stuck. And like I said, that's a colonized name that's been just kind of stuck to us. But really that's where, what we are, we're, we're Gayokono. As someone raised in the American school system, I wish we had more of a dialogue like this in our our history classes to understand the ways that these names have been applied and misappropriated so we had a better understanding of the peoples of this land and where they came from. And it's just like, for me, as I try to process this, it's part of my ignorance in trying to work through and have these conversations is understanding how much I don't know about the impacts that colonization had on the people who were colonized. There's so much to unpack to have these dialogues to just understand. And I thank you for sharing this with me to know that even Cayuga isn't a traditional name, that it came from another culture for the Gayakono. Right. These, these small steps and like I says, um, like I says, we're, the first place where we came to was, you know, up the, at the top end of the lake, I guess, over here to, uh, the Sun of the Falls area. And, um, the reception there isn't, quite as well as we get towards the bottom of the lake and that's just because there's been a lot of you know issues with the lion claims and things like that but i think through education um and like you said conversations like this this is where it can begin 
because everything is new, you know, everything is basically new coming back. And I think that uh, in the future, more conversations like this is really what needs to be had so that education is key so that we can all start to understand because like, that's been one of our, uh, our concepts as Haudenosaunee people is uh, to try to get along. And whereas we've been accepted a lot better, I guess is in, I guess the bottom end of the lake, is like Flemingsburg area. And, mm-hmm. you know, I know Michelle can attest to that as well. And it's something as someone who is interested in permaculture as earth care and people care and working within communities. As a group of practitioners, we know that many of the ideas of permaculture come from indigenous peoples and traditional practices. The credit hasn't necessarily been given to those people and cultures. And so it's having these conversations and understanding where a lot of what we do comes from. And that way we can have conversations like this to figure out what plants and practices are bioregionally appropriate come from these stories and songs that you have about plants in a place. And then as we understand this better, that we as permaculture practitioners can give appropriate credit to where these ideas come from and the peoples and cultures that develop them. Because like the work that you're doing, Steve, to return these native genetics to the land, that's super important when it comes to what we're going to be facing in the future with climate change. And then what can we do in order to maintain those crops and understand this traditional knowledge as people outside, you know, even if it's just something as simple as growing some of these plants to improve the seed bank and build the relationships and alliances and cooperate as people who care about the earth and the best ways that we can care for the land. I agree totally. I agree totally with that because, you know, like a lot of concepts and things that we, we use as having certain people is um, because like look at it, like climate change. We just talked about climate change a little bit there. It's really important to for practices to like to grow right now, to grow through this climate change, because I guess is um, there's practices that have changed what I've seen within the last time I planted with my grandmother. You know, 30 years ago, what she used to tell me, I've had to adapt and change a little bit. And that's with climate change to make it work. So that's why it's so important. And like I said, um, there needs to be alliances made because I know there's a lot of like-minded people. And that's really what you got to think about is, uh, like I said, I've, I've noticed the, the change in methods and certain things what needs to be switched up a bit on methods on how to grow. So... We need to look at what's going to grow because there's certain things that, you know, with this heat that's coming and, you know, different things, it's going to be, is different. So a like-minded people need to stick together on, on this because when, when it comes, we're all going to, that's when we really need to stick together and we need to start now. And what are some of the challenges that you face right now as you've been on the land for a while and are working on this revitalization? What are your current and next steps and what your encountering a need to work through in order to achieve those goals? Well, what's really ironic is um, the biggest thing what we're always looking for is land, someplace to plant, you know, because like I said, uh, with this political situation that's going on and where, well, even where that 
land settlement was agreed on. Like I said, it was at the wrong side of the lake because that wasn't that area isn't traditionally where where we grew. So what I'm trying to do is like my biggest I guess issue right now is getting places for these seeds to to grow. You know what I mean, so I'm always looking for spots in different places within the traditional traditional area, and it's uh, I, I find it you know sometimes it's it's tough to find, but like I said, I just need to. We need to like like-minded people so that we can we can carry on these efforts. So right now, that's my that's my biggest the biggest thing. But uh, everything else, you know, like I said, I've got you know this is six years in now, so we're figuring it out. But that's the biggest thing right now is trying to find this these areas, trying to get more 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 land, and that's not I guess not only for seeds, but it's for our people, and because everything is connected. Like our language is connected to our people, our people are connected to the land, and our food is connected to the land, and everything goes back. It's all in these cycles, and we need places for this to grow. Just like I need some place for these seeds to grow, I, we need places for our language to grow. We need places like that. So, like a lot of times, like within our, our culture and like within a lot of things, it's all connected. Like our food source, and we hear this food sovereignty and. It's really tough because a lot of people throw that around really loosely. So, like I said, everything is connected like that. So that's our the, the biggest issue right now. I guess what we're looking for is to have, like I said, not only some place for our seeds to grow, but because everything's connected, it it all works in these cycles, right? And that's whether people want to donate land if they're in the like Seneca Falls to Romulus region of New York, or if they're open to growing out some of these seeds or really any other assistance that someone might want to lend to the calls, and that overall you're open to any suggestions or solutions that someone might have. Oh, yes, yes, all the time. As that's really, um, you know, and, and I know like working with Tom, it's been a really tough go up up on the, the I guess, the top of the lakes, center of the falls in the area, but I know a lot of people are more on, um, they're, they're more open to these ideas and things. Uh, the closer I get to the bottom of the lake, started around Romulus, and as I work my way down, and what's ironic is because that's where the traditional planting area was anyhow, you know what I mean? So it kind of, everything kind of coincides. It seems to work out that way. And how is the work on teaching the younger generations the language and traditions going? Is that proceeding well so that you can maintain the language? And traditions for future generations. Yeah, it's like uh, like I said, we've been here and we've been able to uh, establish some more speakers um, that are able to you know carry out ceremonies and things like that. So confident in that area. It's just the uh, like with things that had happened with the destruction of the schoolhouse and things right now. There are certain other things like that where we don't necessarily have have an area to really like have a home base for it. So. That's uh, a little, that's a worry right now is for that in order for our, our, con- our instruction to, to continue in a consistent way, because that's really what, what we really need is consistency. And like we said, someplace for it to be, like there's someplace for these seeds to grow, but we need someplace for our language to grow as well. So a lot of times that's what we're, like said, as far as ceremonialism go- is going, I'm confident with that, but we need our, still our everyday instruction for um, because I guess it's, it's this uh, colonization, it's been 500 years, it's been working on our people, right? And we've only had 
six years to work here. So mm-hmm. we need some more time and we need some more, um, some more effort. So a lot of times that's what we need to, that's how I compare it. And this is so the language remains alive in everyday conversation as opposed to becoming something that's only used for ritual and ceremony. Exactly. Exactly. Because like I said, we're, uh, you know, the colonization efforts, our connection is with like our language is so deeply connected with the land and with what we do. And so like, that's what we do. We plant. So we need to do these practices and we need to be connected to this land for, for that to work. Like we said, that's the biggest fear. We don't want it to turn into where it just, because our people need to grow with it. And if it's something that's been linguistically written in a book someplace, the language isn't really alive no more. And that's what I understand about some of the indigenous languages of North America, is that if you don't grow up speaking them from an early age, that it's something that becomes very difficult, if not impossible, to learn as an adult. Because of the use of, of things like tone or specific pre- and post-fixes, not to nerd out too much on language here, that those things aren't found in other languages we might be exposed to, and that there's a complexity that's hard to master as an adult. So if we're going to keep these things alive, there's something that one needs to be immersed in as a first language from birth. Right. And these are these these are the efforts, you know, like I said, that we're really trying to work towards work towards. And I know like what Michelle had talked about, where she talked about these children being born here. And we have the opportunity now to do this. It's just that we need to make it happen, right? And one of the things that was shared with me by my permaculture colleague, Rebecca Cutter, that introduced me to the two of you and your work was a short documentary that she had produced. And in that, some of the problems in politics that had arisen was that it was proposed to promote intertribal harmony, that there was a schoolhouse and some gardens that you had built that were destroyed. And how does that impact you and how you work through that and the greater politics that occur then because of the tribe versus the expectations of the United States government and like Indian affairs? And how does that impact you as you try to go through this cultural revitalization and keep these traditions alive while still having to fight these decades and often centuries old political conflicts. I'm going to let Michelle talk on that a bit because like I said, she's been here for a lot of times. And like I said, I think that, like I said, I was fortunate to grow up with like, you know, submerged in this um, culture and language thing. But what I really seen when I came here was a people that was, that's what they were searching for. And I think with a lot of the political um, issues that was happening, that's where a lot of, lot of the, where it had started because I seen the people that were searching for identity, I guess, and it was being sort of held away from them by this other person that was recognized through BIA or something. So I guess Michelle, she can answer that a bit more. Like I said, we were a small community when we started getting um, into the culture and the language that Steve had, was bringing. From there, you know, doing the ceremonies and um, the kids, my, I can speak for my kids. They picked it up a lot quicker than I did, you know, being because my kids were younger, of course. And I said, wow, I said, they are picking it up so much quicker. <laughs> you know, my son, he can... He can speak pretty good and he sings and my daughter, you know, they, they all do real good. 
when those buildings, you know, went down and there were, there was a schoolhouse, there was a daycare, there was an ice cream shop, there was like a cannery building. And, um, of course, you know, we had the uh, two gardens there. We had um, a raised one and then we actually worked with, you know, the land as well. And which was really hard to work with, like Steve had mentioned. From seeing that go down and the politics that has been involved out here, to me, it was really disheartening to see how Clint Halftown, who is Gayakono as much as I am, and he, what, you know, that was, um, he knew what that building was. He knew that that was the language where we were, we had invited him over these last few years, even, you know, but he would not sit down and talk with anybody over here. But people were trying to reach out and like, even I know I can speak out for my family. My one younger brother had even went and tried to go and see him at his house and, you know, invite him, come see, come learn, come, come to ceremony, you know, and he wouldn't come. So it was just very disheartening to see um, something like that go down. And um, he knew, you know, the kids that are being born here, the kids, they were, you know, in that schoolhouse every day in the gardens every day. And when that happened, it didn't kill their spirit. You know, of course, all of us were in shock and in panic and, you know, wondering what was going to happen. And because it, it was it was shocking. But those kids, I think they kept us going. They were just, you know, looking at us. They seen that schoolhouse and that's the first thing we all thought of, you know, what are we going to tell the kids? And when they seen it, they were upset and they were sad. But then it was like, well, where are we going to go? Where's our new schoolhouse? <laughs> you know, where are we going now? So, you know, it didn't kill their spirit and they still sing, they still talk. We still put in a garden this year. You know, we're still um, trying to hold little classes um, at different people's homes right now when we can. Of course, then Corona hit too as well. So, but we were fortunate enough over here that we um, had no cases at all in our community. So that was real thankful and um, just, holding um close together as a community still dealing with the politics that is going on um because now the latest was you know clint halftown of course didn't get his land into trust application out here and a lot of the decision was based on the events that occurred on the 29th of february which was a press conference because shortly after those buildings all went down the um the traditional chiefs and clan mothers, you know, they were all aware and they all, you know, came together and then um, had a meeting about, you know, what had happened and how they were going to address it. And then we had the press conference on the 29th. And then, of course, you've seen, um, well, everybody in the media, you know, there was a, um altercation that had occurred. And from that altercation, I can speak even, you know, like I say, for my family, one of my other brothers, you know, he was there and um, he um, says to me, you know, he goes, you know, he goes, when I decided to walk over there, he goes, you know what I was trying to do? He goes, I learned who I was over in that schoolhouse. And he goes, and I had to fight my way through a bunch of 
like you know he was like like non-natives they weren't nobody there was nobody was there that was from any other nation they were all non-natives he goes and i just wanted to go over and like touch that land where i found myself and he goes and look at you know and to me i looked at him and i'm like that's generational trauma i'm like that's handed down from sullivan's campaign that's sullivan that you're feeling you know i was like that's what we felt i was like that they triggered that emotion in you I was like, because we're still not done dealing with that. We never got to deal with that. We got chased right out of here. And we've been dealing with that trauma ever since. And I said, and that wasn't enough. I said, they put us through residential schools. I said, so we could try to bury and forget about that trauma. And I said, but look, it didn't work, did it? I said, because it came right out on February 29th. And I said, all of us, I said, we all felt it. It was, you know, that trauma that got handed down and we're still trying to deal with and that was really like it saddens me too that like somebody that's Gayakono and you know that would um would trigger that type of emotion inside people and use other outside factors and external factors to trigger those emotions and you know and they came right out that was a real difficult day to go through and that's exactly what it was you know it's exactly what it felt like from what I'm learning and from learning about who I am and everything and do, learning these different stages, you know, and I learning about the residential schools and what our people and stuff have gone through and why they chose to stay silent and not teach me who I was. I can, you know, now I don't have such harsh judgment against my own Gayakono grandma. You know, why didn't you teach me, you know, or over my own father? Like, you knew how to speak Seneca fluently. Why didn't you teach us that more? You know, you would sing, but you wouldn't teach, you know, or say a few words here and there. But he went through a residential school right there on the Seneca territory. So now I can understand that now that I'm learning more about it. And then trying to fight not only the United States, but it's sad that I have to, like, fight against my own people, which I feel like from what I'm learning is like one of your final stages of like colonization when you're fighting your own people. And that conflict is occurring because of the distinction between the traditional clan leaders who are recognized by the community versus the leadership that is recognized by the U.S. government? Yes, that's correct. Like our chiefs, we have um, three on this side. We have three chiefs. We got two from the Bear Clan and we got um, one from the Heron Clan. There's 10 chiefs all together. So the rest, the other seven are up in um, Six Nations. So our chiefs, they reside on both sides, you know, the United States and Canada. So um, Clint Halftown, I know Clint Halftown and um, he was going to like traditional. He was seen in longhouses before. He, he was with um before sam george there was vernon isaac and um he was um actually you know following him around and going to the grand councils and onondaga and you know going to canada to the other chiefs stuff like that but then there came a time when vernon got sick and as the land claim here was coming to being um final you know they were gonna start negotiating on the land claim here that's where clinton halftown they gave him authority for signature signing, but that was only for like federal funding. It doesn't mean he was the 
chief. It doesn't mean he can sit and make decisions. That's all he was, was just government to government communication. And that was it. But he took it upon himself to get to where he's at right now and try to take the land into trust, which, you know, the people don't want, you know, he's taken the nation hostage. That's how the people see it. You've taken the nation hostage and you're using the United States as an accomplice. Hearing that, it reinforces how difficult many of these conversations are about how we can repatriate land and how can we honor indigenous peoples and where they come from. Just how complicated that is because of all these treaties and structures and nation states like the United States or Canada. The way that all of these confluences complicate what feels like it shouldn't be that difficult. But it just becomes layer after layer after layer of politics that we need to work through. And the way that power can be assigned or granted without those people necessarily being leaders within the community. And it sounds like we have so much to go through as those people who care about these issues, whether we're inside the tribe or as outsiders who would like to break this hold of colonization. And I thank you for sharing that story and giving us insights into what you're experiencing personally so that we can have a better understanding. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. And in the time we have remaining, do you have any thoughts for those people who are listening on how those of us who aren't indigenous can be good allies to you and your people? Well, I'm working on this website that we're trying to get, get going live here. And that's like, we're going to try to like update the outside communities, outside Gaikono and let them know like where we're at and how we're progressing, um, how they can help. And right now we have the GoFundMe um, that's, going on um that for people can donate and that's all going towards um culture you know the revitalization and we're hoping to like you know get a new building up for like schoolhouse you know our new schoolhouse but right now that's basically where we're kind of at right now working on that so people can help and we can create allies and let people know you know where we're at and because there's never really a dull moment around here it feels like honestly you know, and honestly, like my own kids, they, you know, they'll call and be a little leery about like, what is going to happen now? Like, what, what do you think they're going to do to us now? You know, and it's like, man, you know, they'll be like, man, mom, all we want to do is just survive. Right. They're like, we just wanted to plant and we just wanted to learn our language. And they were like, what is so wrong with that? And I'm like, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that, but we're just going to have to fight because we're survivors. And Steve, Michelle, do you have any final thoughts for the listeners? I would just like to, a lot of times what I try to reiterate because I can, not only do I try to educate, you know, the Daikona people, I do my best to educate, you know, settlers and people who are living here on the lands as well, because um, we need to get along. So I think the biggest thing is education. And a lot of times when you think about the uh, Gayakona people or Cayuga people, a lot of times like we're, we're looked at as history because you hear of us and stuff like that. But um, that's one thing I'd really like to change is that, you know, the Gayakona people share where you history, but we have the present, what we're doing right now. But the biggest thing is that, uh, we have a future as well. And our future is here. Um, and that's what we're trying to do. So that's one thing I try to change and try to let people know as, as you know, they think about where you live geographically and stuff that, and that the people that 
we're not a history lesson that we're where we're here and that you know definitely there's a future for us so that's just one thing i try to make sure that everybody can see and grasp that because that's really what we're where we're coming from i guess my final thoughts are just um to keep people educated re-educated on us and my big thing is to like keep this whole cultural and revitalization going and honestly i feel like i'm fighting for my grandkids because you know they're the ones that are gonna be here you know they were born here and all these kids that were born here and that's really what um what it's all about you know them and i'm just trying to look beyond them you know their kids as kids well thank you for that and everything else you shared today and for joining me for this episode of the permaculture podcast you're welcome you're welcome and that was michelle van every and steve henhawk as we mentioned in the interview they're running a GoFundMe to continue their efforts in the face of recent setbacks. As this episode comes out, that campaign ends in a few days, but you can find that at charity.gofundme.com slash o slash en slash campaign slash coming home. And of course, as that's a long URL, you'll find a link to that in the show notes. If the GoFundMe is closed by the time you hear this, you can also mail a tax-deductible donation to Neto Hadanakwe Onkwahau, Inc., a Gaiagohono-led 501c3 that supports Native arts and culture. Mail a donation with the memo coming home to Cultural Revitalization Fund, Neto Haranakwe, Onkwahau, U.S., 41 Shoreham Parkway, Buffalo, New York, 14216. For me, the ethics of permaculture encompass the whole earth, including the people and their connections to the land. Whether we find our way through a cultural identity, religious traditions, or an inherent love of life. If our practices are to create permanent culture through permanent agriculture, we need to know and acknowledge those who came before us and the efforts of their still-living descendants. As Michelle and Steve shared, these are not peoples lost to history, but often displaced, rich and vibrant cultures alive all around us. All we need to do is look, stop, and listen. If they are open to inviting us in, we can then ask how we can be an ally to their calls, and continue our work as permaculture practitioners to care for all people. But those are just my thoughts in the moment. What are yours? Leave a comment in the show notes, or get in touch. Show at thepermaculturepodcast.com If you enjoy this episode or any in the archives, consider joining the Permaculture Podcast Patreon community at patreon.com slash permaculture. The Summer to Fall fundraiser is continuing for a few more weeks. If you'd like to see me add video tours of permaculture sites and projects, as well as in-person interviews to the offerings from the podcast in the future, please donate today. You can do so online at paypal.me slash permaculturepodcast, or by mail to my new address, Scott Mann, 210 East Fairfax Street, number 300, Falls Church, Virginia, 22046. As a thank you for anyone who donates $50 or more, I'll send you a USB drive with every episode from the first 10 years of the podcast, from my first tentative steps right after completing my permaculture design course in 2010, through to the 10th anniversary episode, a conversation with Tasha Kluna, the Permapixie, out on October 10th of this year. This is also a great way to get every episode of the show and explore the breadth of all permaculture has to offer. As later this year, in order to better manage the server where everything is stored, I'm going to start removing the first few years of the podcast from the website. For most folks who download the show through iTunes or Stitcher, 
or wherever else you find the podcast. You probably haven't seen these in your feed for a long time, but they have been available for direct download through the individual show notes pages at thepermaculturepodcast.com. And of course, all those episodes on the website or in your feed will remain free to access and download. And you'll still have hundreds of episodes of the Permaculture Podcast available for your education and listening pleasure. Until the next time, consider the land where you live and the traditions that arose there while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.